Yes. Uh, thank you for you? thank you for hanging out with us. Your your resume is almost a little overwhelming. Like you've done so much stuff. Um, and what I really wanted to ask you is just how it all started. Like, how did you get into writing? How um, how did you get into the love of movies? Um, and then we'll cover some of the things that you've done and some of the things that you're working on now. Uh, sure. Um, well, for me, it's it's the classic. Certainly, of my generation, it's it's the classic story about loving movies as a kid, um, uh, cutting school and going to the movies and sneaking into the movie theater. I think, but it was you know, fortunately, I often look back on this. Growing up, we had because television was in the fifties when I was a kid and and early sixties, but mostly in the fifties. In the late 50s, it, television, you know, was was starting to grow, getting really big, and everybody was getting a TV set, and they needed more and more product and more product. And the best thing that they found to eat up time to put things on the air were, were movies. And movies were just, I just adored them. I loved what they were. I, I think I always knew that I wanted to write. Even before I was confident that I wanted to write movies, I was writing poetry. I was writing short stories, even as, as a kid. Some of the kids in school <laughs> were also writing little stories, and and they were of a sexual nature, and uh, and they were selling them in these little black composition notebooks for like ten cents a, a, a story. And I thought, this is a good career. This is this can yeah. this can work. So yeah. We- so I, I started I started getting fascinated by it, and uh, uh, I came in a, a good place in a national poetry contest. And I was printed in the magazine, in the book that they put out for the best poetry from you know all school ages. And I, I, got, I made it into that book for the whole country. So I was writing early on. As time went on a little bit further, when I went into junior high school, there was a little theater. There were like four theaters in my neighborhood. And, uh, and Danny's father, who was my dearest friend in those days, he and I hung out a lot. And when I was in those early days, there were like four movie theaters that we used to go to all the time. But one of them was a little tiny, wonderful theater. It was called The Empress. And I think I've read Scorsese's stories and, and Spielberg's stories and, and all of them. And they all have the same experience. We all found this little theater that showed old movies. And I used to cut school all the time and, and try and sneak into the movies during the day. And I would watch all this. And I mean, it was just to sit down in that theater and just be able to, you know, being transported into another world. It was mostly movies that I'd probably already seen on television because the theater wasn't getting like, you know, really good stuff. They were just getting some of the old movies. And I remember um, how many times I must have seen Audie Murphy's To Hell and Back, how many times I must have seen a couple of John Wayne movies. I, I certainly, every time they had a, a walk in the sun, I would fly to it. That's one of the greatest war movies ever made. And it's pure art and pure poetry. And it is magnificent. 
and starred Dana Andrews. And uh, it, it is a spectacular, wonderful movie about one little squad on one little mission. And yet you learn everything you need to know about the soldier's life during wartime. So, so it consumed you basically. Like you watch it, it, these, these movies and like, it was such, a, such an impression for you at an early age. Same thing for like us, like we love movies, music more for me, obviously, because I didn't I didn't get into writing movies. But so I, I love that. So so you, you go in and what was an experience? What was the experience like back then in a movie theater compared to like, you know, decades later? Like what what was it like back then? Well, the, you're talking about this theater, which was basically my central central theater when I was growing up, because I got to watch all these old movies and, and basically classic commercial movies. It gave me a taste for movies. The, the most influential period of my life was just after that. When there was, when I discovered that also in the in the in the general area of where I lived, there was an art house that actually had movies that were quite substantial and and foreign films with subtitles and all kinds of things that were much more serious. And I remember seeing um, uh, movies like I think it was Stuart Whitman and Rod Steiger did a movie I think called The Mark uh, about uh, a, a pedophile. Wow, it was wow. very very groundbreaking in those days. I bet, and, yeah. And nobody went to see that one, and and I I saw that I I know I saw HUD in its initial stages at, at that theater because I just to see you know Paul Newman as a modern day cowboy was just absolute wonderful. So I got to see much more serious films, and I broke away from my normal group of friends because I was interested in those kinds of movies, and I began to realize that that's what I wanted to do. Seeing those movies were seminal experiences, and I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And so I, I started writing things, not screenplays, but I, I started writing plays. And, I, and my first instinct was I wanted to be a playwright. And so I went from, from writing poetry to going to the movies, and knowing from literally from the time I was 12 that what I wanted to do for my life was write. Awesome. And and so I, I went from that into uh, writing plays, and I and I and I had then what I would say probably is is the most seminal experience for me. I was a bad you know a kid because I was doing all that cutting, and I got into some other trouble. Yeah, yeah. I was taken out of my home, and I was put into a reform school. And the reform school was in upstate New York. And then from that reform school, I went to after you you know you. They figured you're going to be okay. They sent me to a halfway house in in New York City, and the halfway house was on the Lower East Side, and it was it was in in Greenwich, basically just at the edge of Greenwich Village. And I went to work in in that place. I, I mean, I went to school in, in that halfway house where they watched you the 24/7. But I was what at time the period in New York are you talking about? This was this was like Greenwich Village. This was like this, um, uh, Seventh Ninth uh, Street and St. Mark's Place. Wow, nice. Uh, seven, uh, near Second Avenue on the east yeah. side. Yeah, yeah. The Lower East Side. So what? My what? Favorite, what? What year? Like what? what like what decade? We're, we're talking, talking about? about. I'm saying this must be um, sixty. I, I would say sixty-one, sixty, sixty-two, maybe. Okay. Wow. Yeah, okay. because That's I because time I know, down there. I know I was going to Seward Park High School. The way I can remember is I know I was going to Seward Park High School, and I was coming home on the bus on the they JFK was shot. So that's November 22nd, 1963. Wow. It was an emotional day. But nonetheless, I was at that place. 
I was at the edge of the village. And the first thing that really changed my life was that I got to work with um, uh, somebody that I knew at, 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 the, at this place, which we nicknamed the club. He was an actor and a, and a kind of producer. And, uh, and he came and he basically donated time to, these, to the, uh, those of us who were in this reform, you know, this halfway house wanting to give us, here's what you can do with life. You don't necessarily have to go out and, you know, work in a cafeteria or be a, in a mechanic or something like that. You can have another life, maybe even a life in the arts. So he was peddling that, that world for us and, and talking about acting and theater and so forth. And he belonged to a theater group, which is, became truly legendary and very famous called the Living Theater. Uh, it, was, uh, it was run by a guy named Ju uh, uh, Julian Beck and Judith Molina. Julian Beck in and, and later years in the movies, like uh, uh, he, was in a, he was in a lot of horror films. He was a wonderful, wonderful actor. They were great actors, but they had really, they did some very serious plays. Uh, Man is Man, they did a lot of Bertolt Brecht. They did a few others I remember, but, but they became famous for doing things like their biggest play was a thing called The Connection. If you ever heard of it, Shirley Clark made a film of them and, and shot it down at the Living Theater. And it was a bunch of drug addicts who were sitting, ruminating and sitting around in a room and they're pontificating about life and they're waiting for their fix to come. A guy was going to come with, a, with shots for them and, and a fix for them. And they're all just waiting. It's like waiting for Godot. So they're waiting for the guy that doesn't show up. Well, the guy, the guy you mentioned real quick, I just want to say he was in Poltergeist too. That's right. He was. That's right. So that's he, a, he was. Julian he was, was in Poltergeist. Yeah. yeah. He was like, um, a very horrifying, like he played scary, a, very, scary he played a very, very scary guy in that movie. But go ahead, continue. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, you're, you're right on the money. He was in Poltergeist and, he, and I think he did subsequent movies along those lines uh -huh. because he had such an incredibly terrifying presence. You know? Yeah, it was it, for a kid. Yeah, I was eight and he scared oh, yeah. the shit out of that me. That was nightmare fuel. Yeah, <laughs> he was he was freaking great. He was yeah, yeah. absolutely wonderful. And, and and trust me, a hell of an actor. But he's, he, he staged and, and directed some of these plays. And the, and, the, and the big one was The Connection, which Shirley Clark filmed about these drug addicts. And the idea was that they were all addicts waiting to get their fix. The wonderful thing about it was it broke the fourth wall. And it, so it became, in New York, a legend. Because during the course of the play, when they broke for the second act, when they're doing all their talking and waiting for, the, for their connection to come, the, the actors literally came out off the stage and into the audience and they bummed money. Oh, wow. <laughs> People gave them like money it. because they really were, you know, drug addicts. You were convinced that you were watching the real thing. Yeah. The guy that I knew from the, who came to the club, he played the producer and he said, I'm gathering these people. He would come to the front of the audience. He came from the back of the audience. He would come sit on the stage and he said, I'm, I'm here just to introduce these guys because I wanted to get them together so you could see what life of a drug addict is really like. And a wonderful actor named Warren Finnerty, I will never forget Warren. I think he was one of the great actors of all time. He played uh, Leash, which is the main character in that movie. He later played in, in Easy Rider. He played the farmer where, where, uh, where Fonda first stops and says, oh, I like your farm here and all that stuff. Leeches was a wonderful, wonderful act. And anyway, so he- Panic and Needle Park. Pardon me? Panic and Needle Park too. Panic and Needle Park. I think you'll also find that, the, the, that Warren Finnerty 
was also in uh, a hat uh, a hat full of rain um, that he he played uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, henchmen in the hat full of rain. Ah, it's amazing all these people that that you encountered, like everything that it you was, guys. It was yeah, it was you, fascinating. So New York in the sixties. <laughs> I love New York in the sixties. It was great. So I, so we did that, and 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 I and and then the producer in the second act, the the, the drug addicts pull him up on stage and say, okay, you want to see what it's like? Okay, you want to be, you're telling these people what it's like? Yeah, let me show you what it's like. And they, sh- and they shove a needle in his arm. The audience screams because he's suddenly being shot with heroin. Uh-huh. And they totally freaking bought it. And I go like, this is great. Yeah, that's so, great. That's so cool. So, so and, and then he, and then he, you know, he stumbles around. He's getting his first high on, on heroin. So it's a, it's a, it was a great play. I think it ultimately, if I'm not mistaken, the connection I may have won like a Pulitzer or something like that. I'm not sure what it, it may have won some awards, but it was a great play. So they did that play. I started to hang out there with this producer, Julian Baker, Judith Molina became, or, or like me, became friends with me. And they put on some, uh, weekend plays for kids. And I decided to write something for it. And I wrote something, which I think I called, if I remember correctly, it was my first real play. And I called it The Island. And it was it was kind of like a uh, Mark Twain, Huck Finn thing about, about some island in the Mississippi, where a, 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 an African American kid, a black kid, and a white kid, are both you know who don't like each other are both trapped on this island after a flood. And they decided to put it on for a couple of Sundays. So that was my first experience in seeing something produced, and I go like, I got to do this more often. Yeah, that's that's that, that's that's amazing. You know, especially because a lot of people do want to get into movies. They do want to get in the arts and stuff like, but no one ever really sticks with it. So to like watch people like you, you know, at an early age where you're like, this is what I want to do. And and this is what you've done your whole career. So, but yeah. Well, that's, I mean, if there's any lesson that I've learned and any lesson that I would impart to others, it is, you got to do it. I mean, you can't wait for it to happen to you. You got to do it. For me, it was easy because of what it meant. What what you got to do is write. And and I go through the when in the younger days, I went to the stage, and a lot of young writers. I'm sure it's still the same. Where you get a great idea, you start to write, and you never finish anything. But you're telling people, oh, I'm working on this great play about you know, Noah and the Ark and this and that and the next thing. And you're just you love to talk about it. And you may read a scene or a couple of lines of dialogue from it. You want the the buzz and the high of being able to talk about it, but you can't somehow push yourself through the drudgery of it to get to that point where you type the six magic letters, T-H-E-E-N-D. That's very difficult. Fade out is- You gotta do the work. Pardon me? You gotta do the work. (laughs) You gotta do the work. So I I did that play and, and it was a great experience. I think that had a profound impact on my life and it made a decision. I had been left back in school because I was taken out of reform school. I had had a terrible career. I was a really bad student. I went to Carnegie Tech and then I came back to to New York. The first thing that I did was I got into, uh, I looked for a job writing and I wanted to be doing commercials and, and TV commercials and things like that. And I got a job at a company that did movie advertising first so I actually got a job to go to the movies almost every day, see a movie, and then write the greatest spectacle with guns, babes, and, yeah. and, and machine guns than you've ever seen in your life. But I got to write those kind of movie ads. Yeah, yeah. And I wrote things like there was a re-release of HUD, one of the ones movie I told you about. Uh-huh. 
and I wrote a line like "Hud, uh, he was the man with the barbed wire soul," and uh, and my favorite, which became uh, very significant in New York when Clint first came out with um, a "Fistful of Dollars." I went on a a rainy Monday morning. They asked me to go to I, I think it was United Artists uh, building or whatever mm-hmm. it is, and there was a, a, a screening room in the basement. And as they go catch this this movies make a lot of money in the in Europe and you know and they United Artists picked it up and they're gonna you know release the Western and all that and so just go write something you know pick it out and go watch it and then give us a couple of lines. Yeah yeah and yeah. lines for for those movies in those days were like look at all the guns and the bullets and, and the babes and the money and so uh, <laughs> so it was very simple to write and then you know more you know more killings than you could shake a stick at you know sure 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 yeah uh, and uh and so I went to see this and I was, I was like, the minute it started, I said, that's your Jimbo folks. <laughs> that's your Jimbo. Right. Yeah. So you go like that. So that's, so, so Kimurasawa said, um, your Jimbo was an Eastern Western. And I looked at this movie and I said, this movie is a Western Eastern. And, and so it, and, and I look at it and I, and I realized it was different. It was nothing. No Western had ever been like that one before. It was it was provocative. It was awesome. It was uh, it was to see it. You know, like the first one to see it in in America. It was or it, it was a thrill and a half. And I go like, this is really great. You can't just release this release this movie like a piece of junk. This is special. So I went back to the the, the company I worked for. It's called Dino Hauser and Greenthal. And I went back to them and I said. You can't just write the same old crap for this thing. This thing is really special. Oh wow, that's so cool! Yeah, so it, it felt like completely special and different oh, to you. Yeah, so very different. And I, and they said, well, all right, you know, spend a day on it, but no more than that, you know. Yeah. And uh, and I go and I sat down with the art director and we started talking through the movie. You know, we started. He didn't see it, but I did, and I started explaining things. And then I, I realized that it, during the course of that movie, they never call him anything. He's Blondie, he's the tall man, he's the fast gun, but they don't give him a name. So I said to the art director, well, why don't we just call this guy the man with no name? And then the theme line I came up with was the man with no name uh, and uh, adventure will never be the same. I ended up doing that line and then there was something about, I convinced them that all these Western, you know, these commercial action films always had a lot of artwork and uh, and very few lines no text the less the less anybody had to read the better because their people who go to those movies didn't read text so they didn't want any words on it and i said just reverse treat this like an art movie yeah and i said take clint and with his big serape and and i wrote literally hundreds of words that, that read like what we call a reader ad where you saw a lot of a text a lot of copy across his, his serape and i wrote pr- purple prose like danger fits him like his tight black glove death swirls around him like the smoke from his cheap cigar uh, uh he's the man with no name and once you meet him adventure will never be the same yeah yeah so that kind yeah. of stuff and and they said well we like it but you got to go and convince united artists and i said gladly so i went and i talked and 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 that title itself the man with no name it, it kind of stuck you know for for the selling of that movie and in fact in, in the other subsequent movies they said the man with no with no name is back and that kind of thing yeah that's that's great i mean that so it's kind of like early taglines basically you know for like the early the- tagline stuff and i was i really had a great time doing that so i did movies like that 
then I did some real advertising and somewhere along the line, maybe a year, I went to Benton Bowles and did some television commercials. I forget where it was, like uh, in, in, in an area called the Four Corners, which I think is the only place in the United States. I think it was Denver. I went to Denver. I think it's the only place in the United States where four states touch each other. Okay. And uh, and oh, then there right. was yeah, an article right. when I, we were leaving the com- when we were leaving the co- finished shooting the commercial. There was an article in a newspaper that said it was like the fiftieth or you know uh, anniversary or, or or whatever it was of the very last Indian uprising in the United States. And I and I stayed and I looked at the article and and I and I went to the newspaper and I asked to talk to some of the writers that were there or newspaper men. And it was a fascinating story about an Indian. And, and I, I just fell in love with it. So I, about a week later, I, I stayed in Denver for a while. I came back to work and I said, I'm leaving. And I quit to write my first full movie screenplay, which, which I called The Day the Indian Beat St. Louis, because this Indian was basically framed for a murder and then taken for trial in St. Louis. And it was a wonderful true story. I really liked it. So I wrote that script. And that was my first one. And I and I had a great time writing it. It was filled with all kinds of flaws that your first full screenplay would be filled with. Oh, yeah, I would imagine, for yeah. sure. Like sure. anything, yeah. And all kinds of yeah. terrible junk in it. But, but it when, was, you, when you look back I, at it now, do you still feel that way? I love the idea of the story. And I lo- actually thought, I think the characters were pretty good. It, yeah. it, it was I put a reporter in it that was really interesting. I came with, I got a, a producer, a really successful producer, a guy named Elliot Kastner, who produced, you know, a little movie like Where Eagles Dare. Uh, Elliot uh, saw that script and he loved it and he, and he bought it or he optioned it. And he uh, he got it to, you know, one of the <laughs> most exciting days of my life followed by one of the most heartbreaking days of my life. At that moment, it was uh, Jaws had opened and it was enormously successful movie uh, somewhere around that time. And uh, and Elliot got to Richard Dreyfus and, and and Roy Scheider, and here were the guys, the two two guys from the biggest movie in the world. And and Scheider wanted to play the Indian, and Dreyfus wanted to play the reporter. And I go, it's my first damn screenplay, and they want to do, they want to be in it, they want to be in this movie. I said, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened on on, on earth. <laughs> Yeah. And 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 Elliot, who you know was always a dreamer, said, "Oh, they're good, but I can get Nicholson and Brando." So he was determined to get Nicholson and Brando. So he passed on the two of them, yeah. which wow. broke my heart. And and then it was all kinds of crazy complications. But it it opened the door for me, and and that movie started me. Uh, it, it, the fact that it was a decent script got me around to other people. I got another producer involved and said, what do you want to do? And I said, I had read something in Variety that said that Dustin Hoffman was looking for a movie. And I went like, how could he, this guy, you know, who was now the hottest thing, how could he be looking for a movie? And so I said, I, I kind of, you know, I, we didn't have Google or anything in those days, but I just looked around and read his stuff and, I, and, and he had never played a cop. So I said, well, I'd like to do a story with, about him uh, being a cop. And I said I would base it on one of the experiences I had while I was biking around the country, and uh, uh, where where a, a motorcycle cop was gunned down from the back of a uh, Volkswagen bus in uh, in Phoenix. So I said, you know, I, I'll I'll write a script about it, and I wrote the script, which I called Electric Light and Blue. Lo and behold, the head of United Artists got a hold of the script, 
and decided he was going to make it. So literally the second script they ever wrote became a major studio feature film. I got to recommend that movie too to anybody who hasn't seen it. I just, I watched it on prime. It's up on prime, uh, Amazon prime. And, uh, I was really blown away. Very, uh, John Ford esque kind of got a Western feel to it. Um, if you're a fan of no country for old men later right. days, like I, I got a vibe of that. Like, obviously yeah, this was yeah. preceding it, but, uh, but, uh, very epic film. I, I read somewhere, um, I don't know if it's accurate, was, were they behind sch um, schedule shooting that and they took out a whole, like a bunch of dialogue about a love story? Well, and if that, if that's true, like how does that make you feel as a writer if like something gets well, pulled I, out? Well, you... I, I thought that was terrible. Now, the, the truth of the matter is it's not that they were behind schedule. Mm -hmm. The guy, there was a very important producer, a music producer, whose name is James William Gersio, who produced a, a Chicago, small group right? called Blood, Sweat and Tears in Chicago. Oh, yeah. So he, you know, so he, you know, so obviously the studio wanted to be in business with this guy. They wanted his music. They wanted something to do with Blood, Sweat and Tears in Chicago. He was the producer because he got a hold of the script and he's the one that got it to the United Artists. And he, and he's the one, um, actually it was because, the reason he picked it up was because he was at, at William Morris and the original title of the script was Pig, because that's what we called cops in those days. <laughs> yeah. Pig. So the original title of the script was Pig. And he automatically picked that up because he saw it on a desk and he read it and he loved it. And, and then he got it to one of the executives at United Artists. Anyway, he was the producer and he edged out, forced out the guy who was directing it so he could take over direction of the film himself. And he... And the studio obviously backed him because he had, you know, he had blood, sweat, and tears in Chicago. He Peter Cetera is in the film too, isn't yes. he? I yes. think, yeah. And uh, so, um, so he took over. What he wanted to do was he decided that he wanted to have more action, more chase in it, and a bigger chase sequence after the movie was done. The love story had been shot; it was there, and I saw it with the more complete love story. Because the love story was one of the girl that Blake rescues at the, that commune becomes a, a love affair that helps it, it change his mind about kids. Right. So that was totally eliminated from the movie. And and they actually filmed it, they had it. And the girl was pretty good. She was, you know, she was an attractive girl. I forget mm -hmm. her name, but she was pretty good. So um, they had it, but Gersio decided he wanted, you know, he was obviously, impacted by bullet he was obviously impacted by french connection so he said i want to have a big you know a big chase and the studio said well we've spent enough on this already you know and and so we only we're not going to give you that much and he said i'll pay for it so basically he then eliminated the, the love story and went back to do a, a bunch of shooting for that big chase sequence at the end mm. with with blake and 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 Billy Greenbush's bike gets knocked out from under him. Blake knocks it out and then they blow up another bike and then they ride over people. And it was just, it was just total mayhem, but it, it was really, it wasn't that they just cut it out because of uh, anything else other than the fact that that producer would now become a director. It was because he wanted to have a big action sequence. Gotcha. And, and so, and he did it on his own. So he had to Great cut something from the movie. Great and film. Uh, and the and the person who made it, there are two people who really made that movie. One is one cannot fault, or uh, you know, Blake uh, was a very 
crucial figure into the direction of the movie. Uh, he knew what what he could do. He knew how to shoot him. He was he was the de facto director of that movie, and he worked really hard, put it together. And the other person that was really wonderful and and, and an artist, there's no peer, was Conrad Hall, who was the cinematographer. This is one of the greatest cinematographers America has ever had and produced. And he was, you know, you look at his movies, you'll see that uh, they're just extraordinary. You know, All the President's Men or whatever it is and Tequila Sunrise. And you can go on and on and on and on. They're great movies. Yeah, Tequila Sunrise. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So so Conrad, Connie Hall is is a true artist. So th- together, you know, with that, with them and James and Garcio and all of that, they put together a terrific uh, uh, um looking movie that is i've seen it recently and and it holds up to anything that's photographed today it's it's imagery is as contemporary as anything that's photographed today so uh, it was truly a wonderful piece of work so i so now i had my first movie produced and and after that then i started uh, staying in new york to try and do some work in new york i found a little bit but I ended up coming out to California more and more often because there was more going on. I ended up working with um, wonderful things like Richard Pryor on Some Kind of Hero and Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, I would, I, that's, a, that's what I was going to me- mention, those two uh, Michael Pressman movies. Um, so it was Some Kind of Hero and then uh, Dr. Detroit. So you did some some script writing for that. So can you give us a little bit on, on those two movies? Because one was 82. Well, I, Hero was 82. Yeah. Dr. Detroit was 83. And it was the same director. So obviously you guys knew each other. Did you I, go I, into I, that yes, knowing I, you're going to be writing for these unique, two of the most unique comic voices in American history? Like, you know, you're going to be writing for Pryor or, or you've already I, I had written he, that. I, it didn't work that way, quite that way. What happened was I had uh, been uh, playing around with a couple of storylines. Paramount knew me very well, and uh, I was uh, I had done one of the polishes. I was working on Forty Eight Hours. Oh wow! Which oh, was wow. for Eddie Murphy. So yeah. Yeah. Paramount knew me as uh, somebody who could do kind of a little bit of hip action, a little bit of hip dialogue, and a little bit of fun. So they kind of liked that. I worked for a while with Burt Reynolds, who was going to be in uh, uh, in Forty Eight Hours. Wow, was he really? really? Oh, it was going to be Burt Reynolds. Yeah, I worked with Burt. It was instead a, of Nolte. Yeah, it well, it started off a, a different. <laughs> That's crazy. The movie wow. went through a, a bunch of gestations. It's you know which they all do, but it started off where basically, um, it, I went down to Paramount knew me because of, of uh, I had been uh, um, trying to do some things and I'd come in there on, on several occasions. And and so they knew me about some, some of these projects that I was working on. We went to um, Jupiter, Florida, where Burt Reynolds was. And, and Burt was attached to 48 Hours. And the original story was going to involve a, a sheriff who had a pet tiger, by the way. So and, and lived his own kind of life and 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 Bert, you know, liked being in Florida and in Jupiter and all that stuff. And he wanted to play this character, and we started to to play around with the script, and and then we we did some things that they kind of liked. And then Bert was out, as I remember correctly. And then for whatever the reasons were, it may have been Bert. I don't know what it was, but all I know was the script went away for a while, disappeared. And then the next thing you know, it came back. And now they had Eddie Murphy, who was coming off of Saturday Night Live, and Nick Nolte, and it, and it totally changed. 
So it's no longer, you know, about, you know, obviously not about a cop with a tiger and living in Florida. Yeah. <laughs> so it, so it had completely changed. And so they asked, you know, they asked me to work on that for a bit, which I did. But at a certain point uh, after meeting um, uh, Walter, the job for me was try and they said, Walter said, you know, you take the scene on page 27, the scene on page 53, the scene on page 96. And you fix those and I'll fix these. And for me, as a writer, I'm one of those guys who, who just, I needed to get the sense of the whole thing. I, I couldn't write something if I didn't know what was going on on page 27. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I said, I can't do this and I can't give it justice. And so uh, I, I didn't end up finishing off on, on 48 hours. I had become familiar with them because I met people at Paramount and I met a guy named Howard Koch on a couple of the projects that had to do with African-American stories. And he he suggested that I meet with Richard and, and with Michael, who had been uh, assigned to do some kind of hero. Okay. So that was an assignment and, and I met them and I got along very well with Michael and and Richard, I adored. I mean, I just absolutely adored him. I had, I had seen his comedy from the early days, and 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 so I had absolutely fallen in love with him. And and we got along pretty well. And then I, I then I asked. He was asked. He asked United uh, Paramount uh, to have me come out to uh, his place in Hawaii. He had a ranch in 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 Maui where he wanted to work on the script. So I had a wonderful experience out at his ranch in Maui. There was a, a little enjoyment of weed and other things, and uh, but it was a just you know being in the presence of him was uh, was just wonderful and hearing some stories that he would tell and and he was he was great and he really paid a lot of attention to the story. It was Michael then who after some kind of hero got the job to do um, Doctor Detroit. Okay, yeah. and and he had already hired. Or, uh, or Dan Aykroyd had already signed on to do the picture. So I went to meet with both of them. And I thought I loved Dan Aykroyd. And I, and we, and I thought uh, I understood him pretty well. And it, it was really exciting for me just to be in a room. A couple of times I, I had written some scenes and some speeches that, that the, the character did. And we were over at Michael's house. And, and Dan picked up the pages and started to walk around and do the scene. And that was a real treat. It, it's, there's nothing like... Being in the room with an actor, especially one of such remarkable qualities as, as Richard Pryor, or even you know Jackie Gleason or yeah. or, or Art Carney. Was it the Southern uh, Lawyer? Um, for which one? No, you uh, you were just talking about the scene we were talking about before the Southern Lawyer and Doctor oh, Detroit. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, uh, the the one you mean the one that Dan Aykroyd did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He no, he uh, it was something about talking about. Um, I think he did the one as as the doctor. Okay. So he started to okay. play with how that doctor was going to sound. Yeah. <laughs> so he was so he was searching for that character, and he was trying different things. So he obviously he was pulling some comic bits out of out of his memory. Yeah. And he was trying different things, and it's just it's really exciting to see an actor with that kind of skill up there playing around with your words and your and your scene. And and trying to find who this guy should be, what is this school, a college professor when he has to play this vicious, you know, uh, Doctor Detroit? 
what does he think is 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 it's not what Dan thinks. It's what this this English you know this professor. Mm-hmm. What does he think a, a, a pimp like that should sound like? So it was great just to be in the room to watch that happen. That was a real treat and a half. So and you you co-wrote that with Carl Gottlieb, who he had stuff to do with the Jaws. Well, Gottlieb, I, I Gottlieb came in. No, I didn't co-write it with him. I wrote it. I I did a a, a draft, a couple of drafts based on. Uh, an, an earlier, I forget who had written the, the first draft, which is maybe what Bruce J. Friedman, is that it? Oh, Bruce Friedman, yeah, yep, yep. Yeah, I think it's Bruce Friedman. So he wrote the first draft, then I did two or three subsequent drafts, and each I wanted to do basically, I wanted to bring in a baby, so I wanted to do a kind of romantic, you know, where he now is is crossing, you know, lives to do something else and, and be it, you know finding himself being something different by being a pimp. So, uh, and falling in love with a hooker at the same time. So I wanted to, you know, it to be a kind of sprite comedy and witty and urbane in a way. And, and so I, I didn't want it to be broad slapstick. You know, that was not what I felt comfortable with. At a certain point, they decided, United Artists, uh, no, no. Uh, uh, yeah, it was was it was it UA? I think it was. No, it wasn't UA. It was Universal. Take it back. It was Universal. Okay. Universal decided that they wanted to be more of a um, a broad uh, uh, slapstick comedy for whatever the reasons were, and I don't know why exactly why Carl was chosen. I mean, I think he's is a terrific writer, but I don't know why he was chosen because I don't remember the broad comedies that Carl did. I know that he he. But he was a, a finisher and a polisher of Jaws, so maybe that was the reason. Yeah, I mean, I, I I read that that he was brought into Jaws to like give it, um, yeah, to like round out some of the characters, like you said, a, a finisher, and it, and it's that aspect of of the business that you guys are in is always fascinating to me because you know you come up with the script and then someone else like you know polishes a character and then from there someone else adds the humor. Um, I mean, I could imagine it, it's 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 nice to work as a team, but sometimes also frustrating if somebody changes something that you feel very strongly about. Look, it, it, it's it, you get used to it. I mean, I still see it even today. I'm I'm 108 years old, but <laughs> even today you still see it. It doesn't change. The industry doesn't change. There, it's filled with a lot of people who think they know what they're doing, and some people who do know what they're doing, and very few people who get away with it and don't care about what they're doing. So you, so sometimes what they want to do is bring in a specialist, which they think, now, if I just get a little more comedy along this line, let me get that, that guy or that girl who did that kind of comedy, and I'll, put, I'll punch that into the script, I'll get that to work. And, and, and a producer, look, that's the way, the nature of the beast is that the person who shells out the money has the right to decide what direction the movie takes. Now, they may go with an actor who says, you know, I, I can't make this movie without an actor. And he wants it now to be take, uh, be a, not a Western, but a story on the planet Mars. OK, that's the way it's going to be. So it, it that's the reality of the movie business. And you, you you learn to live that way. You learn to accept a life which is it, there are other people will always have a voice in what you do. Uh, very rarely, unless you achieve a certain status. And some people have that. <laughs> You've got wonderful newer writers like Taylor Sheridan and stuff like that, that, that you don't mess around with what they do because they're really great at what they do. And, and you can't, you know, and, and these producers kind of know 
that you don't tell them how to, how to write this kind of story. So in this case, I think because in, in, in uh, Dr. Detroit, because Carl had been such a, 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 an important uh, uh, element to the success of Jaws, they felt it, you know, that he could help you know, punch up and, and he convinced them that he could do the comedy that they wanted. And, and I'm trying to think about what he changed. Uh, I, I, I think he may have created, created a couple of more situations for mom to be in. In other words, use that broad character a few more times than, than, than I had had it. So that may have been a big plus. So, and, and the Guild decided that he made enough of a contribution to get credit. So get credit, yeah. he, he did get credit. So, so we, that's fine. Um, so, um, but that was, you know, that's what happened there. I, I was not, you know, I, I, I didn't see the movie. And to be perfectly honest, you know, in, in this business, it helps to be honest with yourself, if not to your producers, if they ask you to go in a certain direction and you can't do it, and it's not what you feel comfortable why try to do it? I mean, you know, you, you, you're, it's never going to work out. If you're not happy when you're writing, it ain't going to work out, you know, you, you know, so they, they can't drag you through to do it. That, you just say, that, you know, I know what you want and I don't think I can give it to you. I, or, I, you I, know. I, I think this is a good segment into your uh, direction because the, uh, the year after Dr. Detroit, you direct your first film, uh, which is uh, Oxford blues. So, can you, you know, get us in there and, and talk about Rob Lowe, Ali Sheedy, and what, what that was like? I didn't know it was a remake. Was it a remake? No, it's not really a remake. It, okay. it, it really isn't. It, it, it is, I knew this producer, for, I've known him all my career. His name is Elliot Kastner. And, and so, uh, and he had optioned my first screenplay, and I had written other things for him over the years. And a couple of movies we, we, we liked very much. And, and, and he had come to me at one point and he said, in those days, the, the way that it worked with international financing, he had about a million and a half dollars, something like that, in England uh, on some movie that he had made there. And he couldn't get it out of the country. Oh, so wow. he had to use it and had to use it quickly to, and he had to use it to make another movie. Okay, that's so, interesting. Wow. So he said, what, what, can you, what, what can you come up with that I can shoot there? And I basically felt, well, I can do a kind of variation on a, 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 a Yank at Oxford. And, and so I wrote a, a kind of variation on that. So it's not a remake by any means. And it was a variation about a guy that goes into rowing and goes to Oxford, but fall, you know, falls in love with a princess. He goes there seeking a princess. What happens to, to Robert Taylor in the Yank at Oxford is he, he, he meets somebody while he's there and gets involved in all kinds of shenanigans at Oxford. But I went there with a guy who was a, a, basically a con man and wanted to to uh, go to meet the 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 uh, a dream of his life, which is which is an English uh, princess or royalty. What he thinks. And All this, of a sudden, this was Rob Lowe, like a year after, like The Outsiders. And I I don't, I don't remember. Obviously, I was five when The Outsiders came out, but so we remember it differently because to us, it's such a cult film. But I don't remember. I don't know if it was ever a hit, but I know that it was. I to us, it was like a big deal. You know that name. Mm. It was it was a, a kind of a hot niche film. It wasn't a mass appeal movie, The Outsiders. Okay. But it, for for a certain group, uh, and, and 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 young people, it really was a very uh, important movie, and and well done. And book, yeah. Um, and so so Rob, so Elliot said, you know, he he wanted Rob Lowe 
when I wrote this character, he said he wanted Rob Lowe to play the part. So I, uh, I met with Rob and I talked to him and uh, I thought, you know, I thought he would be great. I thought he would be terrific in the part. And, and we talked about the movie and all that stuff and we got along very well. And so basically Elliot put it together very quickly. I wrote the script pretty fast and Elliot put it together very quickly. Um, we got, uh, he got, let's see, he had Rob Lowe, uh, he got um, he got Ali Sheedy. I'm pretty sure I had picked up. I knew who Ali Sheedy was, but I didn't. Um, he got a hold a hold of her, and he got her to be in the movie. We did look at. Um, let's see. I can't think of anybody else. The rest of it was basically an English cast, and and we talked to a lot of people over in England. It was really great to do that. And we got some wonderful English actors and, you know, and some of them went on to some very nice careers. And um, how, how, was your, how was your shift in, into direction? Like, uh, did it feel natural? Did you feel like I, I'm to ready me, to do this? Uh, to me, it was, it, it was very natural. I mean, obviously there were things to learn, but it, 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 it was very natural. I, um, I knew the story I wanted to tell and I had a certain visual sense of what I, what I was, was hoping for. And when I got to Oxford, um, I must tell you, it is the most extraordinary location. Oh yeah, mm. it looks it. You cannot turn that camera around and not find a, a $20 million production shot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is, it is un unbelievably spectacular. And, uh, and I uh, had a wonderful um, cinematographer and, um, and the DP uh, had been a DP on some great, great movies. I mean, uh, uh, I'm, uh, I'm not, I don't think he was on Lawrence, but he was, I think he was like maybe on um, uh, um, uh, um, River Kwai. He was on a couple of great films and and I asked him, he was truly a great a Chip Chip Waterson, I think his name was. He's truly a, a, a master artist. And and I asked him, what is it that he loved about the work that he did, having made so many great films? And I'll never forget what he said. He said, I know that I'm the first one to see the movie. So cool. Yeah. That is, think about those words. He's 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 the cinematographer. You know, he's the cameraman. He's uh, he does it all, and he looks it through the lens. And and he's the operator, and and he sees it first. Yeah, that's someone. And, that's someone who loves their job a lot, and I love that. Yeah. He, yeah, he loves. That's a guy who loves his job. He's terrific. Yeah. So, so I had a wonderful location to shoot at. We had remarkable imagery. I think the I look at the picture. I think it's really well shot. Mm. I think it's. Yeah, yeah. I, I look at it and I was really happy with the look of the film. Really happy. Did did you, you got to watch like a you get you get to watch especially back then you get to watch it in a movie theater with people right like what was the first oh, time yeah, you yeah. did that? I, no, no, I went to uh, in. 
in um, in LA. I went to the, all the theaters, you know, a bunch of the theaters who was playing in the big theaters. Now it was exciting to see that, you know, to see the some reaction. Uh, it, it was it looked absolutely spectacular and wonderful, and and I love the imagery. So that was a real treat for me. I felt very comfortable directing it. I think there were things that you know we could have done better and all of that. I think I learned a lot. Rob taught me some things, and Ali was very smart. Ali, she's an incredibly brilliant woman, and uh, and 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 she explained some things to me. And so it was all in all a really happy experience. A lot of pressure. I mean, I, I, very often I, we were out there in the cold on the water, and Rob an incredible trooper. I mean, he would go into that t-shirt, you know, this rowing shirt, like it was summertime, but it was like, it was like 30 degrees, man. Oh. And he was like, and he was rowing his ass off and he was just, he was just great. He never complained. He didn't, he, he wasn't a problem at all with anything. And he just gave it 110%. And, and I just, I thoroughly enjoyed the experience in the, in the movie. And it, and it all worked out kind of fine. And and I, I was very happy with it. It was a very good first experience. And uh, um, after that, sometime later, I, I made a Western with Rob and Bill Paxton. Yeah, yeah. Frank and uh, Jesse. Frank and I, Jesse. I remember because I remember that on HBO. Um, and, and I got to tell you here on Red River Podcast, where we talk movies, music and, and pop culture, Bill Paxton is like God, like his like he's like one of our favorites ever, like his yeah. filmography. I've met his son. I mean, like he is just like everything that guy has done from frailty to like a, like his whole filmography. He is like one of our favorites. So like what was it like to work with with Bill? Bill was was Mr. Enthusiasm. He was he was really great. Um, he loves other actors. Absolutely loves them. His um, um, uh, his relationship with um, what's his name, Luke uh, Luke Askew, right? That was it. That was the um, the gunman in in Frank and Jesse. Um, he was in you know Luke Askew was in so many films. He was in uh, um, Green Beret with with the John Wayne. He was. Uh, he, he, he'd been in some terrific, absolutely terrific movies. And, and so uh, Bill was just thrilled to be able to talk to him and, and spend time with him. And I thought working with Bill and Rob were terrific. They both had two different uh, approaches, you know, about who they were as actors and what they expected for the future. Um, uh, Bill was, uh, really filled with making contributions all the time. He always had another idea and another way to do things. And, and, and it was, he, he made, he really made it terrific. I enjoyed that movie a lot. Um, I, I think the cinematography in that movie, I'm very proud of. I think the performance Rob gave in, in Frank and Jesse is a terrific performance. I mean, th there are some wonderful moments in there. There's, you know, moments, I love it when he takes the the, um, uh, um, the gun away from uh, uh, Bob Ford, you know, and, and tosses the knife across the dinner yeah. table. Yeah. I, th I think and, you say uh, meet the twins. 
<laughs> meet uh, when he gets on the train and he goes yeah, yeah. meet the twins. Uh, he was you know, uh, Rob. I thought really pulled all of that off, and and a little bit of the madness of of, of Jesse. Uh, I think he did a, gr- a wonderful job. I think. I think Rob did a terrific, terrific job, and I thought so did Bill. And I think some of the sh- some of the photography there was just wonderful. So I, I, I'm awfully pleased with that movie. What what what's it like? Because I know that that some of the, your movies have been released through HBO. Now, growing up, uh, uh, HBO like there was a lot of movies that that came through there that we would see like primarily on there. It was I always remember it's like oh we saw this on HBO. So w- what was the relationship like with HBO in the '90s? Um, because that and I think what was the other one? Extreme Justice came out on via HBO. Yeah, that? Extreme Justice was supposed to be a, a theatrical feature. I think. What happens, I think, in some of the cases with these movies is that the star power in in those movies wasn't enough to justify a theatrical expense of release. Okay. So I think that's, and now that's just part of it, or they think the movie wasn't strong enough. I'm I'm not blaming it on actors by any means. I think the decision was um, uh, on some of those movies, I know that Extreme Justice was supposed to be a theatrical release, and I, you know, I didn't direct it, but I, I think the I think the story was very good, and I very good, I, very good I story. Know. Yeah, great story, like, great like very much. Yeah, and uh, and Scott, uh, I, I thought there was you know some great stuff in there, and and I was uh, I, I thought it was a very exciting movie. And very dark, you know, very and, dark, a great cast. Like I love Lou Diamond Phillips, you know, um, coming off of Young Guns, probably around that time, one and two. Yafet Kodo. Yafet was was great in that. Yafet was terrific in that. Legendary Yafet Kodo. Yeah. And uh, you really had uh, you had a good combination in there. And um, and so. Uh, I, I thought I, I I really liked the movie a lot. I really did like the movie a lot, and uh, and I'm not sure what the reasons were. Um, it, it was uh, it's hard for me to say. I, you know, I'm, I I I didn't know the producers that well at that point, so I'm not sure that I got much inside information. Uh, but I enjoyed working on uh, writing the script, and I certainly enjoyed seeing the movie. I thought the movie really was to me, I thought really very good and very provocative. As a, as a filmmaker that, 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 you know, went through the seventies, eighties and nineties, once VHS started becoming a thing, like what, what was that? Um, what was the atmosphere like? Did you feel like uh, theatrical was like, I mean, everyone wanted theatrical back then. And, uh, but like, did, did you see like a, like a, another life through video? I didn't, uh, uh, for me individually, I didn't, uh, I didn't focus on that very much. I didn't think much about future residuals and future life of, of, of the movies. I wanted to see the theatrical release, you know, most of all, obviously. Yeah. Um, I, I, I saw it several times, but, uh, but most of the time, the films that, that I worked on for what, for whatever, the reasons were uh, sometimes because of the limited budget, it, it was it wasn't enough of, of a spectacle to justify uh, the extra millions it was to put a movie out in the theaters. 
So uh, I didn't feel that, I, I felt there was a, a need for product. So you, you felt good about what was going on because it, it, it gave more people a taste for movies with, 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 the, uh, with video and VCRs and all of that stuff. And, and so I thought more and more product was being done. But I also think that it was, um, it, 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 I think the industry was changing. It's always been a changing industry. Now we're, I'm not sure where we're shaking out now because it's, there's still, obviously I think production still involves uh, uh, pandemic thinking. So they're very careful about how they go about production. I hear that, it, you know, I don't know all the details, but I think insurance factors Oh yeah. Play oh, yeah. on the budgets of movies these days. Um, so I think there's a lot in, that's that's making things transformational. And obviously, they have no idea what box office is going to be like anymore. Right. I, I know that their theaters are opening again, but I'm, I think th there's limited patronage, right? Uh, you know, it's I think so. I, I think really now it's like. A lot of streaming sites, uh, you know, so, P, you know, it'll go to Netflix, it'll go to Amazon Prime, it'll go they to keep all saying the a lot of things are going to yeah. be opening back up by July and stuff to see how that goes. I know in New York. So, but I, I do, theaters. I do, I do like the way HBO Max is handling it, though, like they they're getting those premieres, you know, they're they're still getting those, those, those premieres. So it's like you want to watch Mortal Kombat in the movie theaters or at home on your big TV. So at least you have that option. Um, right. I. I just I wanted to touch on on what you were doing now real quick, because um, I know that you have some finished screenplays as well as some films in development. Well, actually, yeah, it, it's I'm actually feeling quite excited about a bunch of things. And it's just, you know, look, it, it just shows you being the energizer bunny is not a bad way to live. I just keep writing all the time. I've written a couple of scripts recently that's getting uh, some attention. I know I've got a couple of producers who want to make them and have made uh, some deals with me to try to, to make them. I think one uh, is very close to actually with a very significant director and one has just gotten a, a, a very significant director. I think I can mention it, but um, I wrote a story. I'm very interested in the African-American experience, especially during World War II. And uh, because I don't think people know the history of it that much. So I started off by writing a script that I'd wanted to write for 25 years. Wow. Which, wow. Is, called, which is called the Red Ball Express. And, and Danny even helped me with that. But uh, uh, in, in 1944, after we landed in Normandy, everybody, most people know that, that um, uh, Patton and the Third Army Corps raced across France and headed to Germany and they wanted to get, he wanted to get to Germany as fast as possible. So he went 286 miles across France and occupied, you know, German territory basically. And when he reached almost the border of Germany, he, he ran out, he ran so far and so fast that we couldn't supply him. He had no food, no fuel, no ammo. And literally as he reached the German border, he stalled, they couldn't move. They didn't have food, they didn't have fuel and they ran out of ammo. And they were, they were really in deep, deep doo-doo. I mean, they were really, they, they were doomed. And the, and the uh, military, US military tried to figure out how do we save this guy, the, all the third army? 
how do we save them? The weather was bad. They couldn't fly supplies to them. So that wouldn't work. Most of the rail lines had been destroyed in the, in the bombing in order to invade France. So that they couldn't get rail lines out to them. So how do you get to them? Well, of course, uh, the one thing that somebody said was, we've got 40,000 trucks uh, sitting on the Normandy beaches, which is what was shipped over you know, by Eisenhower. And, um, we, and it's mostly like 90% uh, of, of, of the truck units are people by African-American soldiers and who cares about them anyway? So why don't we see if we can get a bunch of those trucks to drive with, without any help, without any support, without any air support, without any military, see if they can drive as fast as they can and get the supplies to Patton as, as much as they can do. And it really, in, in essence, was a bit of a suicide run. Wow. And and these kids who had no military training, they really most of them weren't even allowed to carry guns. So so they were basically basically mechanics and truck drivers. Um, they were assigned to go basically save Patton's butt. Wow. And wow. and so it, it's an it was an amazing story to me. These kids got together. They souped up their trucks. They put guns on them. They put machine guns and anti-aircraft cannons on them, and 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 they and they basically went off on their own, using their own wit, their own daring, their own courage, in an attempt to save Patton. Which, which, if he had been wiped out, the war would have gone on five more years. Everybody admits it, and and we could have been pushed back to the sea. So um, so basically. These kids did these incredible runs of 276 miles to, to, to bring food and supplies and ammunition to Patton. It's a great story of heroism and courage. And the fact that we're standing here today pretty much in, in a large way because of what they did in those days, in, that, in those four months. And so to me, it's an, it's an incredibly wonderful story. And I've wanted to tell it for the longest time and uh, and now it seems uh, I wrote the script, which it came out really well. And now we're talking to the guy who a wonderful director who directed um, uh, Act of Valor, okay. uh, Scott Waugh. And he seems very fond of the script. And so if we can work it out that he would do it, uh, that would be attach him as the director of the movie would be fabulous. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm excited about that. And, uh, and then um, uh, while I was doing that research and other research on, on African-American heroes during the war, um, I, I, I came across some wonderful stories that Patton had, for whatever his reasons were, a little bit later on, had put together what is called the 761st Tank Brigade. It was an all-Black tank brigade. And they were the most daring, the most resourceful, the most courageous group of kids that you ever could imagine. And they did what most, most tankers wouldn't dream of doing. And they took on overwhelming odds and they, were, uh, they became known as the Black Panthers. Now, obviously I can't use that title. Sure. So, <laughs> so I won't call it the Black Panthers, but yeah. I wrote a script yeah. about their exploits and, and uh, I'm calling it Patton's Panthers because um, th that's who they were. They were, they were his unit, 761st. You can look them up, they were his unit. 
and uh, and I, I'm I'm very excited about that script, and I th and I have some people and some very strong, uh, almost A-level directors, uh, or or a couple of very strong directors and an A-level director who may be interested in, in uh, taking over the project. So um, I'm very excited about that. So I've got a couple of these yeah. World War II projects. Awesome. Very, very that I'm cool. very excited about. I uh, that that that's amazing. I that you're still doing it. You know, I, I love that. I mean, your career is is immense, and I don't want to keep you any much longer. I just wanted to ask you about one thing. Now that we got like the what you're doing now, uh, the movie that we could close on is Steel Justice. It's like <laughs> that's our movie. Marty Cove. I gotta talk to you yeah. about Marty Cove, man. We love him. We love. I mean, he was just in a movie called VFW. Uh, he's having he, a great second act right now with yeah. the Cobra Kai and well, everything. How about yeah. third act? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I, I mean, just give us a little, little something about the, the movie. Um, uh, Marty is, is a treat and a half. I enjoy Marty tremendously. He's a, a, a terrific guy, a terrific human being. Um, he is Mr. Show Business as far as I'm concerned. I mean, once he, once, you know, he took me to some wonderful cowboy events because we often talked about a hole in the wall gang and other things that he did. And, and so he loves Westerns more than anything. And we talked about Westerns all the time and we watched Westerns together a lot. Um, and working with him, there was nothing he wouldn't try in Steel Justice, and he and it was just a balls out movie where there was a lot of action and yes, and, I mean uh, great cast. Like it, it was like a who's who. Like you yeah, had like Joe Al, Campanella's in there, yeah, yeah. You had Al, you know, like the the ultimate like henchman, uh, right? Just completely, yeah. It it was so cool. It was it, it, that was quite an experience and. But he, I'm trying to think of if I can remember any incidents since I could end on, on some, something kind of funny, but he was, um, uh, all I can say is, well, uh, 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 there was a point when he gave me, uh, I think it's a birthday present. He had a huge, uh, 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 basically uh, outdoor movie card, you know, gigantic. I mean, I'm sure it was like six or eight feet tall uh, and um and it was for the italian release of a fistful of dollars okay so right. it's a giant photograph of clint in the serape and the pistol and all that stuff we've come full circle <laughs> and and, it, and it's all and it's all you know fistful of dollars so he gives me that into in one package wrapped it you know in, in paper and all you know and color paper and saying happy birthday <laughs> And it's a great, <laughs> wonderful poster. Yeah, yeah. And next to it is another poster, and it's of course of him. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> and, and, and and it and it's and it was uh, I forget which movie it was. Uh, I, I don't think it was Steel Justice, but I know he had most of his shirt off. And uh, and I forget which movie it was, <laughs> but the, the idea of like here I got these two posters side by side, about you know sixteen feet of of. of Male poker dude. Yeah. And Clint is on one side and Marty Cove with his shirt off is on the other side. Yes. And I go like, this is my birthday. So That's, uh, awesome. Well, listen, 
Robert Boris, thank you for sharing some of these stories with us. Um, yes. You know, like like when when we first looked at like everything, we're like, this is super overwhelming. So we just yeah. we had to do some bullet points here. But I mean, anyone listening, his you know his credits go way beyond anything that we covered. Um, so thank you for doing it. And yeah, uh, thank you so much. I'll let you know as soon as I put it out. And uh, from there, you know, that's that's it. It was great meeting you. Thank you for making these movies that we love and uh, looking forward to what, you know, what you have in the future. Red Bull Express and Patent Panthers. Yes. Yeah. Cool. When they're out, come on back. Yeah. We'd love to sure. talk to you about them again. All right. I would love to talk to you, too. Mm. All right. Thank, thank, you, thank so you, guys. Much. Later, Bob.